So we're going to spend some time studying the scriptures. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open your Bible up to Luke chapter 1. It's the third gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, So we'll be looking at some of the Christmas stories today. Uh, Really, just a little portion of that, Mary's response to the announcement that she was going to give birth to the Savior. So she's got this little response. It's kind of a song, kind of a a poem of praise. It's often called the Magnificat there in Luke chapter 1, so it'll be at the end of the chapter. And just want to also echo what Sarah already said. We've got devotionals for families, if you're interested in that, Uh, daily Bible readings through this Time of Advent, it says Advent Devotional. You can grab those in the back. We've got plenty of these, and we'll print more of them. And then also we've got the book Gentle and Lowly. Uh, this is a book we're giving away. There was some millionaire that like donated a bunch of books. If you just signed up, you could get free books. We've got tons of these books. We've got enough at least for every household, maybe more than that. Um, so we'd love for you to be reading this. We're going to kind of follow some of the themes from Gentle and Lowly, um, our call to worship during the last month for November was the theme of this book. It's Matthew 11, where he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He he describes his own heart as one that is gentle and lowly and close to those of us that struggle and suffer. Uh, And so as we transition into our first Advent theme, it's going to be hope today, hope for the humble. Uh, And I want to give you just a, a little explanation about what Advent is. Um, If you can back up one slide, Advent is our celebration as Christians of the birth of Jesus, right? Specifically, the word Advent means the arrival of an important person or event. Um, So it's a traditional Christian term for the season of celebrating the birth of Christ. The theological term for that is the incarnation, that God came and was a human being. He was born as a baby among us. Uh, Our little subtitle here for this season is God with us. So here's kind of the big takeaway over the next four weeks as we think about Christmas at a theological level. It's that Jesus came for us, so we're going to run to Jesus. That's kind of the big theme. That's the tie-in with the book, Gentle and Lowly. Jesus came for you, so run to Jesus. Jesus loves you. Don't, Don't resist. Don't think, no, I've got to clean myself up before I can run to Jesus. No, run to Jesus because Jesus came for us. And so Advent as a practice, really historically, there's a million different ways to do it, different Christian traditions. But as a practice, generally the summary would be it's the slowing down and meditating on Jesus coming to be among us for the four weeks before Christmas. So it's really a way of Christians kind of taking back hold of the season that's been over commercialized and, you know, kind of pulled in different directions. And so what we do is we look at it and we go, okay, Christmas is this thing that the pagan world loves. Uh, Where can we build a bridge between what we actually believe about the hope we have in Jesus and this kind of pagan craziness that's going on around Christmas? And so Advent's just slowing down saying, "Let's, let's meditate on Jesus. Let's think about who he is, what he's done for us. So we follow different themes as we do this, hope, love, joy, and peace. Today, now we'll go to the sermon slide for today, is hope for the humble. Hope for the humble. And so I want to read a little excerpt from the book, Gentle and Lowly. This is from chapter one. The chapters roughly follow the themes of hope, love, joy, and peace. And this is what the author says at the beginning of the book, Gentle and Lowly. He says, quoting Matthew 11, "'Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart.'" And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The heart 
drives all we do. It is who we are. So this word heart, it's used in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It means something more than just the organ pumping in your chest, but it's used biblically to talk about the core of our being, the essential part of who we are. So the heart is this essential part. It says, uh, the author says, it drives all we do. It is who we are. When Jesus tells us what animates him most deeply, what is most true of him, when he exposes the innermost recesses of his being, what we find there is gentle and lowly. You see that? Matthew 11, Jesus says, this is my heart. I'm gentle and lowly. Gentle and lowly. The meaning of the word lowly overlaps with that of gentle. Together communicating a single reality about Jesus's heart. The specific word lowly is generally translated as humble in the New Testament. So our theme this week, hope for the humble. James 4.6 is the classic text. Many of you will recognize this one. James 4.6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So that verse, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, is really a summary for what Mary is going to say in our text today in Luke chapter 1. Typically throughout the New Testament, this Greek word refers not to humility as a virtue, but to humility in the sense of destitution or being thrust downward by life's circumstance. So in Mary's song, while pregnant with Jesus, for example, this word is used to speak of the way that God exalts those who are of humble estate. So humility, being humble, is definitely a Christian virtue. Don't misunderstand what he's saying. We're called to be humble to know our proper place before a great exalted God. But we we can't forget that humility also has a a more immediate concrete sense than that in the scriptures. It just kind of means brokenhearted, down and out, sick, depressed. And so I hope that's encouraging news for you this morning, that if you're weak and broken and depressed and weary, Jesus says, come to me. My heart is close to you. I am gentle and lowly of heart. So we're going to read from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 54. This is called, again, the Magnificat. This is from the Latin for magnify. This is Mary's, often it's referred to as a song. Uh, We don't know that she necessarily sang this, but she proclaimed this. It's a poetic proclamation of God's goodness, we would assume that as someone who was soaked in the Old Testament prophecies and the Psalms, that it was natural for her to speak these words, which are really just snippets, collections of truths that the Old Testament has already promised about who God is. So that's what we're going to see Mary saying in this little section of scripture. And for context here, this is really interesting before we read it. She had just gone to visit her cousin, Elizabeth. Y'all remember who Elizabeth was? Elizabeth was going to miraculously, in her old age, in her barrenness, give birth to John the baptizer, the last Old Testament prophet, Jesus's cousin who would prepare the way for Jesus coming by calling the whole people of Israel to repent, to turn from their sins and from their strengths to trust in the coming Messiah. And so they're conferring about both of them now. They're going to have this miraculous child. And Elizabeth says this to Mary. She basically says, just the previous paragraph, she's like, you are so blessed 
Blessed are you, Mary. You're so awesome. You're so amazing. You're so incredible. And then now we get the response of Mary. Mary's been told that she's awesome. She's blessed. She's wonderful. And Mary says, I'm going to magnify the Lord. So in Luke chapter 1, 46, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So Elizabeth says, Mary, you're special. Mary, you're amazing. Mary, you're blessed. And Mary says, I will magnify the Lord. I'm going to praise God. God, the one who brings hope and fulfillment and grace to the humble, to the destitute, to the lowly. Let me pray and ask God to to teach us what this means, that we would have the heart of Mary, that we would be able to praise God in a similar way in our life. Let me pray. God, we ask that your spirit would meet us here as we study and ponder and meditate on your word. Um, This is 2,000 years ago at a different culture, a different time, a different place. And yet we believe that you speak today, Father, through your word, that the scriptures speak with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. And we wanna hear from you, Lord. We long to see you at work. So we pray that your spirit would open our hearts and our minds to hear you, to receive from you. Meet with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the theme of the day, we've, we've lit it up on stage so you don't miss it. It's hope. That's the theme, hope. We're calling the sermon today, Hope for the Humble, following this theme that is introduced by Ortland in the book, Gentle and Lowly. We are humble. We're spiritually bankrupt. This is the message of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and in another gospel in Matthew 5. He says, blessed or happy are those who mourn or are spiritually bankrupt or are brokenhearted or are needy. He says, we are blessed, we are happy when we recognize our humility, that we're humble, that we're needy. And so we find hope. We find that God is the one who fulfills our hope. He's the one that saves us. And so as we move through this this poem or this proclamation of Mary the Magnificat, what we're going to see are are three main points, simple outline this morning. Number one is hope is for regular people. Hope is for regular people. That's encouraging for you and me because we're regular folk. Hope's for regular people. Number two, hope looks like jujitsu. That might take a little explanation. It's kind of like a flipping around of things, right? It's a turning of things on their head. Hope looks like jujitsu. And then number three, it's my longest point, hope that is long anticipated, painfully slow, and yet gorgeously fulfilling. I think that's my record for the longest uh, point title I've ever had. Hope that is long anticipated, painfully slow, and yet gorgeously fulfilling. So these are my three points. We'll start with the first point. Hope 
is for regular people. We see this in verses 46 to 49. I already made reference to what Elizabeth was saying. I wanna, I wanna go ahead and read that to you now. So Elizabeth, the cousin, the one that's gonna give birth to John, the baptizer, they're meeting up. They're celebrating these promises that are being fulfilled. They're a part of what God's doing. And Elizabeth's like, but, but Mary, you're really special, right? Um, this has gotten worked into some of the Catholic tradition, some of the prayers that are prayed to Mary. Um, and so we just wanna distinguish here that there is great reason to praise Mary, but the reason to praise Mary is her own model for us of faith. That's why we would praise Mary, just like we would praise any hero in the Old Testament, any saint that's gone before. We look at them and we say, oh, they recognize their own neediness and brokenness, and they praise God for his provision. So we see that same model in Mary. So we want to agree that she is special. She will be called blessed. Mary says that, Elizabeth says that, but she's blessed because she sees her need of God, recognizes, magnifies the Lord. So Elizabeth, in just the previous paragraph, if you just look back to the previous paragraph in your scriptures there, starting in verse 42, it says, Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So this great blessing, she's praising Mary. Verse 43, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She's like, I'm unworthy to even be your cousin and be talking with you, Mary, because you're gonna give birth to our savior. She's praising Mary. Verse 44, behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So she's just in awe of what God is doing. And she's praising Mary. And this is where as Protestants, we do have different beliefs than our Catholic friends. Uh, We believe that Mary was not sinless, but holy in the same way that you and I can be holy. Holy meaning set apart because God is at work in our life. So here's what's really fascinating. A lot of times Christian tradition uses the word saint to mean like a rock star of the Christian faith. But the Bible uses saint to mean anyone that belongs to God by faith. And so hope is for regular people like you and I. We have to recognize, we have to go back in time and we don't want to dishonor Mary by any means. It says she's blessed, right? But we want to recognize that Mary is a regular person like you and me. And so the wonder of Mary is that she's a humble person that magnifies the Lord. And we have a model for us to follow as well. So we see, oh, okay, I could be like that. I could recognize my spiritual need and I could praise God and submit myself to God's working in my life. So Mary is holy because of her her faith in God. She's a regular person who is now remembered and blessed because God worked in her life in amazing, gracious ways, not in some way she earned because she was so wonderful, but because she's willing to submit to his work and his grace and his power. So we actually see Elizabeth transition towards this as well. I was trying to kind of set up the, the contrast before I read the text. Elizabeth praises Mary and Mary's like, no, I magnify the Lord. But Elizabeth actually kind of starts to land that plane a little bit herself. In verse 45, Elizabeth says, and blessed is she, talking about Mary, who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So she's starting to make that connection to the blessing by faith. And blessed be you, Mary, because you, you trusted God. You believed what God said. So Mary is a model for us to follow, a regular person, 
and God is at work in her life. Now, just to be clear, I don't think any of you are going to give birth to the Savior, right? Like, that's never going to happen again. That's done. So yeah, she's special. But what we want to do is we want to see this, this kind of thing that, that James talks about in his letter. In the letter of James, he talks about how Elijah was just like a regular dude that trusted God. We go back and we read the stories about Elijah, we're like, no, he wasn't. He was a superhero for the Lord, right? But James is saying, no, this is what happens when people pray and trust God. In the same way we want to look at Mary and go, this is the blessing of trusting God, of submitting to him, of magnifying him. It's hope for regular people. So we see Mary's not sinless. She just trusted God. And that reminds us, same thing with Israel, the Jewish people. Deuteronomy 7.7 says, I didn't love you because you're so lovely. God says, I don't love you, Israel, people of God, because you're so worthy, because you're so great, because you're so powerful. God actually chose them because they were small and puny. And he says, I love you because I love you, right? God works in Mary's life because he's gracious and all powerful. God works in Israel's history to bring forth a savior because he loves us. He's powerful, same way in our life as Christians, as followers of Jesus. He doesn't come to you and love you and and like, I've been watching you and I saw like what a good person you were. So I've decided now I'm gonna save you because you're so good. Like that's that's how we think sometimes. Like if I clean up my act, then, then God will love me. Then I'll get his attention. Christmas time is Jesus came after us. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act. He came and was born as a baby and he lived the life we couldn't live. He took our place. He took our sins upon himself. He came after, he didn't wait for us to get fixed on our own or fix ourselves, he pursued us in love. So Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior. So she's rejoicing. She's praising God. She's echoing much Old Testament language. And this is another model that you and I could follow. I think it'd be hard for us to just spontaneously break out in song. Some of you might be able to do that, right? I think our Kendrick, our AV director, he could probably just break out in spontaneous rhyming, right? He's gifted. We, we, we are not ordinarily gifted in just breaking out with a Magnificat type song, right? Like that's not normal for us. But I do want you to see that, that as, you, as you soak yourselves in the promises of God, then when weird things happen in your life, either glorious things that you wanna praise God for or hard things, where you want to hope in God and lament to him, you're going to start speaking the language of scripture. And that's really what Mary is doing here. So this looks like poetry. It looks like a song. And I think it is poetic to some degree. But really what's happening here is like life is squeezing Mary and the promises of God are coming out. And that's what can happen in your life and in my life. As, as we read the scriptures, as we pray through the Psalms, then we'll have the same kind of language to speak We'll be regular people proclaiming magnificent things like Mary does. She says in verse 48, he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Again, I read this earlier from the book, Gentle and Lowly, that the main kind of text on humility on our humble estate, on being lowly is, is James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
If you don't hear anything else today, hear that. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And Ortland in his book wanted us to understand that it's not just a virtue, but also God is just saying, any of you that's broken, any of you that you're, you're at your wit's end, that you're just totally exhausted, that you're needy, that you recognize how hurt and how wanting you are, you recognize your own sin, you recognize your need of God, you just run to Jesus and he will receive you. We see that lived out in Mary's life. As we think about hope being for regular people, I was just thinking about the season that we're in. We just had Thanksgiving this week. Many of you might be with family during Thanksgiving. You might be with family over the Christmas time. And a lot of times when we get with uh, older people, older family members at Thanksgiving or Christmas time or any other holiday, there are old stories about family, right? Um, I just snapped a picture of some of my wife's family this weekend while we were there. Just grabbed a picture. This is my wife's mom and her two grandparents. Picture from the 50s. This was when her mom was like senior in high school. Um, This is just representative of of what maybe you've engaged in, storytelling, remembering of of family. And what I want to encourage you towards applicationally is when we look back at Mary and we see her recognizing her own humility and weakness, her lowly estate, recognizing that her hope is in God, she rejoices in God, her Savior, that Mary's avoiding these two extremes that we often fall into when we look back on our own family, right? Two extremes we often fall into. One is family mythology. One is we tell the stories of the family and like, well, my family is so strong, I'm strong. My family is so smart, I'm smart. My family was rich, so I'm rich, right? Like this, this, like I have an identity because of the greatness of those who have gone before me. I won't take a vote, see if any of you fall into that, but I think we all fall into that sometimes, right? I have greatness because there was greatness back there somewhere. And it may not even be your family, right? It might be like the high school you went to, your glory days, people you're associated with, your tribe, maybe the unit you were part of, right? We want to take an identity out of this greatness we were connected to. So that's kind of an identity from family mythology. The other extreme is, is shame from our family background or shame from where we worked or shame from where we came from. What I want you to see here is that the gospel frees us to not locate our identity in either the mythology of our family and our background or the shame of our family and background. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, frees us to be honest about the universal human problem that all of us, no matter how powerful and rich and famous or how weak and lowly, we all are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. And the answer for all of us is God's grace. So again, we can follow the model of Mary and look back at our family and go, yeah, there was some good, there's some bad. I choose to magnify the Lord and rejoice in God, my savior. The way this is described in John chapter three is it says, we must be born again. Your birth, whether it was in greatness as a child or shame, does not mark you, but the new birth through Jesus, through hope and what Christ has accomplished for us, being born again, that's what gives you your true identity. God delights in you through Christ. So this is how we want to look back on the story of Mary, but also on our own story, that hope is for regular people, 
The people of God had been through a lot of hard stuff. They'd sinned, they'd wandered, they'd been in exile. They were longing for God to fulfill all these promises. Finally, these promises are coming and Mary recognizes, yeah, hope's, hope's for regular people, humble people, lowly people. Hope is, hope is for the humble, the weak, and the broken. One of the Old Testament prophets that a lot of scholars think she is echoing is Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18. This had become a key verse for one of my old mentors who was dying of cancer. Uh, over about five or six years, he, he died and passed away in 2019. Um, and he was a pastor at the church I used to work at in Temple years ago. And he would keep going back to this scripture as recognition that his hope was ultimately in God and not in his circumstances. Whether good or humble, his hope was in God. And so he would often quote Habakkuk 3, 17 through 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive oil fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Again, a lot of scholars think she's, just, she's memorized these praise songs of the Old Testament. And so the, the praise of Mary is she's just doing a mashup of Old Testament songs she's run to in her times of need, in her times of sorrow. And so again, huge application for us is to soak ourselves in these truths so that we can proclaim the same thing but also to recognize that hope is not just for special people. Hope is for regular people like you and me, regardless of your background, regardless of the way that you grew up. So the second point is that hope often looks like jujitsu. Hope looks like jujitsu. Uh, we were debating this. Kendrick and I were debating the proper spelling of jujitsu. I think there's like Brazilian jujitsu and regular jujitsu, different ways to spell it. I did do some serious research and look it up on Wikipedia, so I know a lot about it now. Yeah, it's a Japanese phrase that means like the gentle or the yielding art, okay? And as I've studied it, um, there's a lot of this in martial arts in general. The idea is that you can use your enemy's strength against them, right? So jujitsu, later on judo, a lot of these martial arts were learning to deal with someone that's overpowering. It's way more powerful than you that has better arms, that has, you know, stronger body or better weapons or whatever it might be. So I got a picture here of someone being flipped over. So if you could show that picture real quick, just get it in your mind. Uh, imagine someone really big and powerful coming at you and you're trained in this yielding art of jujitsu and you can just flip them over, right? You can use their strength against you. And as Mary goes on with her praise here of God, she's saying that this is actually how God works. The way it works is you see someone powerful and strong about to crush you. At the last minute, they're flipped over, right? They're overcome. They're humbled. The greater humbled and the humble are exalted. And so we see this beautiful picture of something that is, that is scary, that's difficult, that's painful for us to actually live through, but there's hope in God overcoming our enemies. So we see this in verses 50 through 53. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, fear biblically has the normal connotation, just like we would think of, of like, I'm scared of something destroying me, right? 
kind of a craven, scared, crouching fear. It has that sense. But biblically, it's something greater because on the one hand, God's holiness can just destroy us because he's so other, he's so perfect, he's, he's so amazing. There is that kind of fear, but it's also mingled with this joy, this awe, this daddy kindness, this love, this closeness that, that even though he's terrifying, he's also the one that shows grace and love to us. We just have to add that. Whenever we see fear, we, we might miss the full range of what's being said here. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He's filled the hungry. This little phrase that'll, that'll repeat, again, like a chorus in the Gospel of Luke. Luke will use this a couple more times in Luke chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount language. He'll use it again in Luke chapter uh, 11. This will be language of God flipping things around. We are often in the midst of our hunger or our, our loneliness or our isolation or our weakness or our just frustration with the brokenness of the world and the evil that's out there. We're often kind of distraught and man, things are so messed up. And we're, we're to look and say, but you know what? God's the God who's always righting these wrongs. He's always bringing down the corrupt, evil, powerful men and lifting up those who hope and trust in the Lord, those who fear God and his power, those who are not proud, but, but humble. And so there's this flipping around, this trust that we can have and I often say it this way, God will rescue. And we have utter confidence in that. We're just not sure to what degree he will do it right now. And I think that's the hard part. And so walking by faith is often not the, the seeing the enemy flipped on their back. Walking by faith is often walking towards the overpowering enemy. Saying, I, I trust I trust that God's going to win. I trust that God's going to be my protector. I'm not sure when, I'm not sure how. You know, I don't know how this is all going to work itself out. And so I think one of the big applications is a heart application for this, is we trust that God's going to flip evil on its head and he's going to elevate that, which is good and right and true and lovely. As we trust that that's, that's coming, we have to guard our hearts against cynicism. We have to beware of cynicism. We have to beware of a mindset that says, no, the strong always win. The corrupt always get away with it. Psalm 73 talks about this where the psalmist is like, yeah, I was like a, I was like a beast. I was like a dumb animal. I just thought the strong always get stronger and the corrupt always win and evil's always gonna triumph. And then God reminded me, no, he is king. He is sovereign and he will get the final word. And so I want you to hear that, that your heart would beware of cynicism. God, God will win. God will overcome evil. God will defeat injustice. God will defeat corruption. God will fill the hungry and tear down those that want to dominate and hurt others. Now, we have to clarify here as we have all this language about the humble and the strong. Um, 
I've kind of good news, bad news for you this morning. Because a lot of times as Americans, we fall into this thing of like, yeah, man, I'm humble, right? I'm poor. And that means things are going to be better for me. We can kind of fall into this prosperity gospel stuff, which, hey, come back next week, Sunday night. Uh, Frank Leeson's going to do a great talk on that. He's been doing a lot of research for that. He's been helping plant churches in uh, German-speaking Europe. Um, and he's coming here to actually to graduate, get his PhD. He's been doing some research on, on how healthy churches can continue to share the gospel in our crazy postmodern world. But he's done a lot of research on prosperity gospel stuff. We can fall for this prosperity gospel stuff that is kind of like, yeah, as long as I trust God, then I'll be rich. We're looking forward to heaven. Heaven is where we're going to be rich, okay? Problem is, though, we're Americans, so we're already rich, right? And we can forget that because we're always comparing. It's the, you know, trying to keep up with the Joneses. We're like, well, my neighbor has more than me, or, well, look at that truck, or, well, that person has a really big house. And so we're always doing, like, relative rich and poor. And so here's the thing. Poorest person in the room. Whoever you are, you don't have to raise your hand. Whoever you are, you're rich by world standards. You're rich by biblical standards. So so don't forget, we're actually the rich ones. And so good news is God doesn't automatically condemn rich people to hell, right? Because we're rich. Americans are rich. I know, you know, our economy is falling apart and everything, but we're still like the richest people in the world. Americans are. Even the poorest in the room, we're still Rich, And so we have to just take a deep breath, a sigh of relief and say, man, I'm glad God doesn't just automatically wipe out all who are powerful. This is pointing to a spiritual reality that those who think they've arrived will be judged. And so that often, that often goes along with material resources. So often materially rich people think I've done this myself, I'm good, I've saved myself, I don't need God. And so that's a theme again and again in scripture that we have to watch out for. So it doesn't mean if you have money, you're automatically going to hell, right? It also doesn't mean if you're poor, you're automatically going to heaven, right? There's just this this, uh, coincidence where often if you're materially poor, you recognize how hard life is and you're able to cry out to God for help. And if you're materially rich, it can blind your eyes and make you think you don't need God. So again, what's the application for us? Y'all, we're all rich. We're in danger of thinking that having food on the table and clothes on our back means we're fine. But Romans 3 tells us, no, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all spiritually bankrupt. So Matthew 5, blessed are, happy are those who recognize they're spiritually poor those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So we want to have this posture of recognizing hope looks like jujitsu. The rich are flipped on their back. The powerful are are torn down. And so we have to humble ourselves before God. We don't want to be the powerful that are like, God, I don't, that's that Jesus stuff is fine, but I've kind of got my life taken care of. Go, go take care of the, the people that really have problems. I don't have problems. We want to recognize our spiritual problems, our spiritual bankruptcy, our, our spiritual need before God. And then as we wait for God to eventually rescue and finish what he started, um, Jesus gives great, great directions in Matthew 24 and 25. I come back to this theme a lot because it's where he talks about the end of the age and he gives some kind of confusing stuff about the signs of the end, the destruction of the temple, the coming kingdom, and theologians all disagree about that stuff. 
But then he gives three parables that are like, live this way. Basically, Jesus says, while you're waiting for me to return, my second advent, my second coming, you're going to be tempted to think I'm not really coming back. So I don't know about you, but I need to hear that, right? Because where we live now, we're like, Jesus, where are you? Like, when, when are you coming back? And so Jesus gives three parables there in chapter 24 and 25. He says, don't be like the servant that thinks the master's never coming back, so you take advantage of the other servants. Don't be like that. But serve the other servants because you know that your master's coming back. Don't be like the wedding celebrants, the people that were preparing for the wedding party that thought, you know what? Party's never going to happen. Who cares? And he says, be ready to celebrate Jesus' return. And then the final one he gives is the parable of the talents. He says, don't be like those who were, were given resources, were given talents and said, you know what? The master's unfair. God is just an ogre. And so I'm gonna bury my talents. No, be like the one who trusts the generosity of the master, the one who trusts God's graciousness. So you're gonna invest your talents. You're gonna spend your life with reckless abandon. So as we're waiting for God to do all these things he promises to overcome evil in the world, don't give up. Trust that he is coming back. Trust that he's gonna make things Right, guard your hearts against cynicism. Okay, last point. Again, I think this is my record longest point. I haven't checked the record book, so I think this is the longest point I've ever had. Hope that is long anticipated, painfully slow, and yet gorgeously fulfilling. Trying to be accurate and and, uh, descriptive here. Hope that is long anticipated, painfully slow, and yet gorgeously fulfilling. This is where we live right now. Verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. God remembers his promises of mercy and grace. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this again and again. The people of God are like, God, where are you? God, help us. And it would say, God remembered his covenant or he remembered his mercy or he remembered his love for them. And then he acts in history. 55, she says, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God made promises to Abraham. So here we are in history looking back 2,000 years to the birth of Jesus, right? But Mary, pregnant with Jesus, is looking back thousands of years to the promises made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and promises made to Moses and to Joshua and later on to King David. She's looking back to all these promises that God has made. And so hope, the longing for God to fulfill his promises, it's long long anticipated. There's long years and years and years of waiting. It's painfully slow. It's slow. It's not our timetable. It's God's timetable. And yet it's gorgeously fulfilling. I want you to know it's worth it. It's always worth it. I continue to be struck by the reality that when Jesus left his disciples He said, it's to your advantage that I leave and I send the Holy Spirit. I wish Jesus was here with me face to face. And yet he tells me to live by faith that living in the present with the Holy Spirit in us and dwelling us, walking with us is actually good. It's to our advantage. There's something beautiful and right in the time that we live in now. And so 
waiting for Jesus to, to finish everything. It, it's, there's long anticipation. The, the King James word for patience, long suffering. It's true. That's where we live. It's painfully slow. It takes longer than we want it to. And yet it is gorgeously fulfilling. So don't give up. Trust that he's coming back. To illustrate this, I grabbed a picture of our ancient documents. Some, we have many ancient manuscripts of our Greek New Testament. So this is Greek here, New Testament, 2,000 years old. Um, and again, before that, hundreds and thousands of years before that, we have many ancient Hebrew documents from the Old Testament prophets and, and writings. The scriptures that we have are far and above beyond anything that exists in ancient literature. And so as we think about the oldness and the long waiting that we're living through right now, I want you to recognize that we have great promises. And just by simple like archaeological standards and historical standards, we have such rich treasures of promises in the Old and New Testament. And just by secular standards alone, just by like historical accuracy, like the number of texts, the oldness of those texts, the agreement between the texts, the coherence between 66 books of Old and New Testament that were written by different people in different times, in different places, with the same theme of a Savior who's coming to save us and who was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. This goes far beyond any ancient poetry, any ancient literature, any ancient religion. It far exceeds the reliability of any ancient documents. If you're in the business of studying ancient documents and you don't believe, it's because you're trying as hard as you can to not believe. And so by application, I'm not necessarily encouraging you to you know, go into ancient document study. I'm saying at least read the English translation, okay? <laughs> at least read the book. Don't do any more YouTube searches. Just read the book. There's, there's plenty of good reasons to not believe, but there's so many more reasons to believe, to trust that he's keeping his promises, that he's gonna do what he said he would do. I'd love to talk to you more about this. I, I nerded out as, as a young uh, 20-something, studying apologetics, studying the reliability of the scriptures, going back and rehearsing this stuff over the years, what I realized is it's usually not that convincing to people that don't believe. It's just encouraging for those of us that believe. So I want to encourage you, if you believe, go study this stuff. Look at the promises of what God has said he would do and see how he fulfills these promises. Some specific places that you can look in the Old Testament, um, in Psalm 78, it's an Old Testament place that's just a summary of all these promises that God has made, the history of Israel. Uh, Acts chapter seven, where one of the first deacons gives this speech where he rehearses the history of Israel and God fulfilling his promises, starting with Abraham, moving on from there. The entire New, New Testament letter of Hebrews is about this, just kind of studying uh, through how God is fulfilling in Jesus what he promised in the Old Testament. Um, the book of Galatians, similarly, is a little shorter, covers some of the same ground. Rehearse these things. Like Mary... Look back on these long-awaited, painfully slow, yet gorgeously fulfilling promises that all come to fruition in Jesus. And she didn't even have the whole story yet, right? 
like she sees it and she hasn't yet seen the full perfect life of Christ or the full sacrificial death of Christ or the resurrection from the dead. Like those three things we rehearse as the good news of the gospel, she hasn't even seen that yet. She just knows that Jesus is gonna be the Messiah and that God is on the move. We have so much more to, to be encouraged by, to celebrate. Go back and, and develop your confidence in God as one who will fulfill his promises and rehearse the specifics of the resurrection itself. We have, we have more data than Mary. Go back and look at it. Study the life of Christ himself. If you have questions about the reliability of scripture or the corruption of the church or the problems in history with Christianity, look at Jesus. Read the gospel accounts. Look at Jesus. Start with him. Do we have a lot of problems with corruption in church history? Yes. Are Christians really messed up? Yes. Look at Jesus. Go, go to Jesus. We'll wrap up here. I want to finish again, just quoting in verse 49 and 50. He who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And so Mary is setting an example for us to be holy, not because of her sinless perfection, but for us to be holy like Mary is, where we say, God, you do your will, you're king, I trust you, I'm gonna follow you. I see your goodness, I see your grace poured out again and again. One of my favorite reflections of this invitation to come to Jesus is from an ancient hymn called Come Ye Sinners. Anybody heard of that one? It's a catchy title, right? Come Ye Sinners. Come Ye Sinners. Don't let conscience make you linger, right? Don't let conscience make you delay when you're coming to Jesus. Don't let conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. So the challenge is like, don't dream of being fit enough to come to Jesus. You're never gonna get there. Nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. That's the requirement. It's hope for the humble. It's not hope for the mighty. Jesus says, I've, I'm, I've not come for the healthy. I've come for the sick. It's not hope for those who have it all together. It's hope for the humble. It's hope for the broken. It's hope for the needy. All the fitness that he requires is to feel your need of him. So going back to Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, he says it this way. The minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply open yourself up to him. It is all he needs. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment is required. He says, I will give you rest. His rest is a gift. It's not a transaction. You don't earn it. You don't buy it. You don't negotiate with Jesus. It's terms of full surrender. He brings hope for the humble. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the promise of Jesus. We thank you as we begin this Christmas season, just looking back on Mary being pregnant with the Messiah. And God, we, we can't even comprehend this. It blows our mind. And we want, like Elizabeth, to say how amazing Mary is, how blessed is Mary, how wonderful is Mary. We thank you for the example of Mary saying, I will magnify the Lord. 
God, help us to magnify you. Help us to see and savor and wonder at your greatness and your kindness to us in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name.